if you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to find the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to roll into chapter 2. We have been in this series on this little letter called Colossians, and there's been a lot of crazy things that is happening in this little town. Colossae is a town in modern-day Turkey, and Paul was writing a letter to the church at Colossae. He had never actually been to this church, but he was writing to uh, correct some of the confusion that was taking place in Colossae around this man Jesus and, and around the, the theology and what we looked at last week, the big word would be Christology. And he's also writing to correct some of the crazy things that are happening in Colossae around some of the chaos of earthquakes and, and should we be worshiping these other things. And so the church there in Colossae, they were like, hey, who is Jesus? Is he enough? And, and Paul is writing to try to figure out some of these things. And so week one, we looked at Paul and how he is like, he has been captivated by the grace of God, that Paul is this guy that you would say he's been imprisoned to grace. Josiah kicked the series off, did a fantastic job. And he said, man, Paul, he went to sleep thinking about salvation, about Jesus, about his grace. He woke up thinking about salvation, about Jesus, about his grace, that he was imprisoned to these things, that it was everything all consuming his life. And then last week, Paul gives us this incredible description about how Jesus is God, Jesus is Savior, but Jesus is also King. And there's this incredible, beautiful passage tucked in Colossians 1, if you were into memorizing scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 would be such an incredible, great use of your time if you would labor over that and begin to think about Jesus in the right way, that, uh, that your theology, men and women, your theology, what you think about God is the most significant thing in your life. So I want to give a shout out to my wife real quick. Um, she may have stepped out with our kids, but man, my wife, I got much respect for my girl. Um, and I got much respect. She doesn't look like much. Like y'all saw her up here like a slim yellow, you know, thing. And so she just cute, she, but she's feisty, all right? And she is tough. And the reason why I know that is because I've been in the room. I was sipping a latte every time, but I've been in the room when she's given birth to another human being. All right, like she's been a champ. And so, and the reason why I got much respect is because she didn't quit after the first one. I mean, we have three children. I call them my muchachitas. And we have these three little girls, and she has given birth to them. And, 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 and what, I've, what I've noticed is that there's been a lot of tears. There's been a lot of pain. There's been, they call it labor for a reason, ladies. Okay, so buckle up. The curse of Eve is coming upon you. I am sorry, all right? Get the epidural unless you just, you know, freak nation. Anyway, so you can go tough, right? Old school, pioneer woman. But anyway, she, she has been, I mean, it's been incredible. And so what's been amazing is to watch her go through all that pain. So baby number two came two weeks early for us. That's when I've been telling Josiah, hey, you better pack your bags, brother. Anyway, so baby number two came two weeks. We were not ready for baby number two. And so she says, hey, I think I'm going into labor. It's about midnight, but, but go ahead and go to sleep. I'll let you know. I'm like, what you mean you'll let me know? You think you're going to, we ain't packed nothing. It's two weeks before the, anyway, I get up, pack bags. She's like, yes, I'm going to labor. Let's go. So I'm like 90 to nothing down on the other side of town. We get there and she is pushing so hard and she is in so much intense pain. The nurse who like she does this for a living has to leave the room. I'm like, girl, where are you going? Like she's about to pass out and I'm sipping my latte like, you got this girl. You got this. You know, stroking her hair. She's like, don't touch me. You know, I'm just kidding. Anyway. All of the labor, all the blood, all the sweat, all the tears produces this moment right here. And it's in that moment where you're like, man, she's worth it. She's worth it. Like whatever it takes just to get this new life into the world, she's worth it. And it's this weird thing that happens inside of the woman's brain that when she lays eyes upon that human being that she went through so much pain delivering, 
She, for, she begins to forget the pain or she rejoices in the suffering that she just endured because of what it produced. Then my wife, she had a man, whatever it takes mentality to bring these kids into the world. And I'll tell you that story tonight because we're looking at a guy named Paul. And Paul had a whatever it takes mentality in order to birth new life spiritually into this world. And Paul's one of these guys, the more that you get to know him, the more that you kind of study his writings, he wrote over half the New Testament. I mean, you're just, you're, you're impressed, you're encouraged, and then you just kind of, once you, you're like, you feel bad, you're like, man, this brother, he's on a whole new level. And so tonight, I've titled the message, Whatever It Takes. Because if we're going to see new life happen in Christ in our life, we're going to need to have a whatever it takes mentality. And Paul, he had a whatever it takes mentality. And when you have a whatever it takes mentality, turn to your neighbor and say, whatever it takes. If when you have a whatever it takes mentality, you're willing to suffer for the gospel, what I want you to see is you're also willing to speak the gospel, and then you'll do whatever it takes in order to spread the gospel. If you're taking notes tonight, write this truth down real quickly. Suffer for the gospel. Suffer for the gospel. Paul in Colossians 1, starting in verse 24, he says this. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So hang on just a second. Paul has just wrote this profound thing that I'm, I am filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So if you know anything about the scripture, uh, you know that that just sounds a little bit odd. And what I love about the New Testament is there's other people that knew Paul that wrote letters in the New Testament, i.e. Peter. Peter's like my boy, like backwoods, fisherman, blue collar, like, the, you know, he, he didn't make real good grades in school. Um, that's why he was fishing early, right? And so uh, Peter, he would say about Paul, hey, I've heard you've been reading Paul's letters, Good luck. <laughs> They're confusing at times. And I love that the Bible would say about the Bible that there are some things that are a little bit hard to understand. That does a nice, you know, a southern country boy like me some good, right? Because when I read it, I'm like, man, I, it sounds like. But listen, let me just clarify the muddy water that may come across in this passage. I was talking to my pastor, Pastor Phil Hopper, and I just kind of, I love to ask him hard theological questions. And so, he rolled by our office, and I was like, hey, Phil, got one for you. Read this. I'm like, what does it mean? And, and he said real simply this, that the world cannot see Christ's suffering. Like, like we don't have a movie of Christ's suffering outside of passion, you know, like, but that wasn't really Jesus, okay? We, we, don't have a, a, we don't have his, we can't see that in real time. And so our pastor said, well, the world can't see Christ's suffering, so the only way they can see Christ is in our suffering, that what Paul is saying is that I bear the marks of the Lord. That Paul literally had scars on his back because he was beaten for the sake of the Lord. He literally had like cuts on his head and thigh because people threw rocks at him because they were like, hey, we don't want you to talk about Jesus. That Paul was saying, hey, I am bearing the suffering of Christ in the present day. And, and you know this to be true. Like, like suffering is one of those things where it really reveals what's inside of you. And we all want the life that goes like this, Lord, like the Lord bless me with the address, the car, and with the, the job, and I give him the glory. Like we all want the life where we can say, man, I am blessed. But, but the same person who has the same thing, maybe they, they live in the same neighborhood, they drive a similar car, and they work at the same place, they may say, well, you're blessed, but I'm lucky because I've worked hard and caught a few breaks and I made myself get here. But it's when both of those things are removed. It's not when everything's going good that you show who you re really belong to. 
It's when suffering comes into your life that what's inside of you will be revealed. And you take the same two men, one says he's blessed, one says he's lucky, and you remove all of those things from them, and then you really begin to see who is their God. And so Paul is saying that I suffer and I continue the suffering of Christ for the sake of the church, that he is suffering for the gospel. Now, let me give you a working definition of the gospels. We're going to talk a lot about that tonight. Paul, he's already covered this in Colossians 1 up to this point, but let me just uh, summarize it real quick. The gospel is understanding this, that you are hopelessly lost more than you care to admit that you have issues inside of your life and they are worse than you really want to admit. And so we kind of cloak our issues by saying, well, it's just a little porn problem or it's just a little anxiety or it's just a little this or a little that. I'm just a little bit manipulative. I'm just a little bit controlling. I'm, you know, I'm just a little bit uh, whatever. And, and listen, we are desperately or we are hopelessly lost more than we want to admit. But the gospel doesn't stay in that negative diagnosis. It says that you are desperately loved more than you ever thought. You are wildly loved more than you ever have imagined that God sent his son Jesus to live a sinless life 2,000 years ago. Die a sinner's death on the cross, the death that you and I deserve to die. But then to raise victorious from the grave and then to be seated and ascended at the right hand of the Father, reigning supremely in glory today. And that's the gospel. And so when we talk about suffering for the gospel, this is the message that Paul was gripped by, and this was the message that he heralded all over the Roman Empire. And so he's like, look, man, I, am, I count it pure joy to suffer for the sake of the gospel for you. Because suffering is always worth it when you know the reward, right? Like my wife, she, she had another kid because she knew that there was going to be a reward. And we know this to be true, like maybe a sports illustration. I don't know if you ever played sports in your life, but we're about a week out from Chiefs trainings, whatever they call it, you know, where they report and start getting ready to win round two this year, baby. We're running away round two. All right, anyway, Pat Mahomes, you're my hero. All right, so anyway, and it, I mean, it's football season, and this time of year, I always think about two-a-days. Um, and when, you, when I, I played football, we did this thing called two-a-days. That means you practice twice a day in like 100-plus degree weather in the south. I would literally lose like 17 to 20 pounds of water weight a day. And so you're, you're killing the water, trying to get it back on, and you're doing all this stuff. And you're like, Chad, why are you sweating two-a-days practice? Why are you doing all that? I'm like, because winning is fun, right? And I want to get on the field, and I want to play the game. And so the pain was worth the opportunity to win in the game. And I wanted to go through that. And listen, we all know that the suffering is worth it when you understand what the reward is. And childbearing is probably the, the best example because it is horrendous when you go through child labor, I've heard, all right? Never personally done that, but my wife, I was there, right? But there's something special that takes place. And God in his, his wonderful design has orchestrated things, even in the physical world, to help you forget the pain that you went through so that you can rejoice on the thing that you've received, and so women, here's what happens in your brain. Like you go through all of that crazy, right? You pass a human being through you. Just let that simmer for a minute, okay? But then what happens is that as you begin to nurse that child, hormones begin to be released in your brain that help you forget the pain of childbirth. That's why you have girls having like 10 kids, man. You're like, did you not? That was hurtful, right? <laughs> but God, he has woven something miraculous into that mama's brain that forgets the pain of the childbirth while simultaneously connecting her with her child. 
So when she looks at that little baby that was so hard to pass through, she says, you are worth it. You are worth it, whatever it takes. And Paul, he's leveraging this idea that whatever it takes, I'm going to do it in order to bring forth new life. I wonder, are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to do whatever it takes so that the gospel can be advanced in your life? Paul, he goes on to say this in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship. You could circle minister and stewardship, and you could kind of connect those two. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Listen, everyone in here, if you claim to follow Jesus, you have the same calling that Paul has on your life, to be a minister. Every member of the church of Jesus Christ is a minister for Jesus Christ. And this is your privilege and this is your obligation, all in the same thing. And so there's, ministry is not, there's not a divide like I'm minister and you're not, okay? That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. We are all ministers, and listen, we are all ministers according what Paul says to the stewardship from God. That word stewardship is this idea that God is like a divine administrator. Imagine God is your boss, and he has assigned to you some tasks that are waiting in your inbox. Now, whether or not you check, the, I mean, because you know this, whether or not you check those things is going to determine your success as an employee. Let's imagine you go to work on Monday, your boss says, hey, I have delegated you some things to do today. And you're like, no, I'm good. He's like, no, 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 you, you forgot, I'm, I'm, I'm the boss, all right? I am the boss, you're, you're the worker. I have delegated to you to do some things. And listen, if you do those things, there will be a payout later. No, I'm good. And somehow we think that that would be crazy in the workplace, but when it comes to our faith with God, we somehow think that it's different, that we can argue with God when he says, look, I have, I have delegated out divine opportunities for you. And so we suffer for the gospel and we do whatever it takes because we are stewards of the gospel. I mean, it's crazy that God would choose you and he would choose me in order to advance the gospel. Like, I like to joke about Josiah and me, like our combined ACT score is less than a perfect score. And so like, I stand on confident, like, Lord, you said you use the foolish things to profound the wise. I'm, that's, my, that's my life verse, you know? That God would use me. He would use somebody that comes from the stock I come from to, to preach and to spread the word of God. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing, and my life should be a, a reason why you should be like, yeah, if he can use him, he can use me. Listen, and God wants to use you and profess. Listen, you are the, the number one plan for God to get his gospel out. God could have done it a hundred different ways. He could have used angels. He could have wrote in the stars. He could, he could tie into the all-star game tonight and just come up on the TV. But no, he has administered, he has delegated out to you as a good steward. And God is a perfect God, mind you. And he has given out to you the opportunity to spread the gospel. But we're talking about suffering for the gospel. And what does that really look like for us as 21st century Americans? You know, like, I don't think that anyone, I don't think that I'm going to have to risk my life in order to get the gospel out. Maybe there's some parts of our nation you would. Like, I've never been beaten. No one's really arrested me or no one's really done anything. Like, I haven't really suffered that much. So how do we rejoice in our suffering? How do we suffer in 21st century America for the gospel? Well, I think the number one way that we can willingly suffer for the gospel is with our things, with our money. 
Now, take a deep breath. Some of you are like, man, I should have come to this church. They're about to make me feel guilty. Like, we're not passing any buckets tonight. We're not taking up an offering. Paradigm is a gift to you from Abundant Life because people faithfully give to this church. And so let's talk about money with no strings attached real quick. God has given you all that you have, not so that you can have all that you want. And one of the greatest ways you as a 21st century American can suffer for the gospel is to have a right perspective of what you have. And so money or the things you have, the car you drive or the the place you live, like listen, let me give you three categories that God began to radically change in my life that helped me understand on how to to approach these things in my life. First of all, I would encourage you to enjoy your things differently. The things you have are not your rights. They are a privilege. And listen, God wants you to enjoy the things you have. It is not spiritual to be poor. And so go dominate your workplace, make lots of money, and enjoy the things that you have for the name of Christ. Allow it to fuel worship in your life. I love to enjoy coffee. In the coffee game in Kansas City, praise God, right? And so I was a messenger coffee, not because it's convenient or close, because it's good, and God has a message for me at Messenger that I need to go get coffee at Messenger and enjoy him as I sent that coffee. And so I was there twice last week, and I can enjoy that. And it's okay to enjoy things, but enjoy it unto God. The second thing that you need to do with your things is not only enjoy it, but employ your things. What I mean by that is you have, you've been given a car, you, like, put it to work. Like, not, not Uber, not, not that you need to, but give somebody a ride for free. Or use your house, host somebody in your house, employ your house. Maybe you have money here tonight that is sitting in a savings account. That's like a lazy employee that is making no money for you. Learn how to put your money to work and employ your money so that it can make more money for you so that you can give more money away. And don't be foolish with the things that you've been given. Don't hide them and think that that's godly. It is godly to take your five talents and go make ten and work your system and work your rear end off for the glory of God. So enjoy things differently, employ your things differently, and then deploy your things. This is the generosity piece. This is where you and I have to willingly choose to give things away. And so, man, I, I love, man, to understand, like, it doesn't make sense, but I love to experience this in my life, that it is more joyful to give than it is to receive. And so for me, like we have young adults that come like, hey, we want to go cross-cultural. We want to go across the world and we want to go and do this. I'm like, how much money do you need? Like, we need this. I'm like, all right, I can't do all that, but here's what I can do. And I'm going to deploy the extra finances that I have so that I can advance the gospel. What are you willing to suffer so that the gospel goes out? Do you have a whatever it takes mentality when it comes to your finances, when it comes to your things? Are you willing to give away some things in order to help someone else advance the gospel? Who have you supported in the last six months to go global? Piper says it like this, there are three types of people when it comes to missions, zealous goers, zealous givers, and the disobedient. Where do you fall? And so suffer for the gospel. You're not going to have a pistol held to your head, but you may have to hold a pistol to your wallet and say, let go of me and deploy your money and your things. C.S. Lewis says this, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., 
is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, we are probably giving away too little. What he's saying is like, if you look at someone who makes about the same money as you, and y'all are going to the same places, the same games, driving the same car, and you're not choosing to live lower than your means of, of income, or your means of stand, whatever, your stand of income, then something's broken. He goes on to say this. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they, they are too small. I love this. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. Yesterday, I was getting ready for this message at uh, Post Coffee. And I told you I like coffee. Anyway, I was there, and um, there were some girls sitting right outside um, behind me, through the, and I saw through the window, they're playing this game Monopoly. Uh, first of all, I'm like, why are y'all playing Monopoly, all right? Worst game ever. All right, anyway. And so I'm like, you, you know, it takes like, they were there for like four days playing that joker, right? Just slinging the money. It takes forever. Who really finishes a Monopoly game? Anyway, Monopoly is this game where you, you get into it, you start buying all these things, and you're there with your family who soon become your enemies, right? And uh, you got your little horse or your thimble, unfortunately, and you're just working around the deal. You're trying to buy up Marvin's Gardens and New York. Uh, anyway, I don't know what that is. You're trying to get all this stuff. But listen, here's what I've learned about the game of Monopoly. It all goes back in the box when you're done. And I tell you that because this, sometimes life seems like a game of Monopoly. When is this going to end? And is my life all about just acquiring more and getting out of jail? So you know, anyway, it's all about acquiring more and getting, you know, the, and at the end of your life, it all goes back in the box. And the only thing that you can take into eternity with you are the souls of men and your, the knowledge of God, the word of God. And so what we do in this life matters. Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Do you have a whatever it takes mentality? If you're taking notes, write this down. Point number two, speaking the gospel. Speaking the gospel. Paul says it like this in verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. I love this. He's like, man, it, it has been revealed. This has been what people forever have been waited for. Verse 27, this is a great verse. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery amongst the Gentiles. He's like, look, there's good news for you. The riches of the glory. He's like, this is not an overstatement. He's not trying to puff up something. These are words that pale in comparison to the reality. And if you want to memorize something, this is an incredible verse. This is an incredible anchor to hang on to. Verse 27, part B says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery that Paul's talking about. He's like, hey, Christ is in you if you believed in him. You have glory running through your veins now. And it boggled Paul's mind because he had been to the temple. And in the temple, you could not enter the Holy of Holies unless you were a very clean, very spotless, very holy man. And then you may still not be able to enter that place. You could not stand in the presence of God because God could not tolerate things that were not holy in his presence. But Paul's like, I can't explain it, but I can't deny it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I don't know. Holiness has now invaded your dysfunction. Christ in you, the hope of the mystery, it is profound, but the mystery, it is marvelous. I wonder, do you have Christ in you? Are you filled with the glory of God? Blaise Pascal, he's, he's dead now, but he was an incredible mathematician. 
philosopher and theologian, and he wrote this as a young adult, that God has placed a a God-sized hole in the heart of every man, that there's something inside of you that longs to be satisfied by something beyond the sun. Solomon, wisest man to ever walk the, the face of the planet, he would say that God has set eternity inside of your heart. This is why some of you, if you don't know Christ, you lay your head on the pillow and you have this deep sense of lostness at times. Or this deep sense of futility. Like, like is, is my life all just wake up, go work hard for the man, make a little bit of money, have a little fun on the lake on the weekend, and then dream about that vacation one day? And then get up just to do it all over again and say the same jokes and rub shoulders with the same people who have the same problems? Is that what it's all about? And Paul's saying, no, no, it's about you getting Christ in you and you having the hope of glory. That he's saying it's a mystery, it's profound. And he goes on in verse 28 and he says this, this Jesus, he says, him we preach, you can circle that word preach. These are action words. Warning, you can circle that word. We preach warning every man and teach, you can circle that word, we teach every man. Somebody say every. Every man. He says, I've got to get everybody on this plan. Every man in all wisdom that we may present every man. Paul is greedy for the souls of men. He wants everybody to know, and he wants to be able to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, that word perfect, you could just circle that, right? mature. Maybe some of your translations say complete. It doesn't mean that Paul's saying you're going to be perfect someday. What he's saying is that you're going to be mature someday, that we have revealed Christ to you, and we keep preaching and teaching and warning you so that you can grow in Christ. The end game for Paul is not to make converts. And so often we have settled in the Western church to draw a crowd, give them some weak, watered-down gospel so that you'll pray a prayer. We can pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, we've done a good job. But Paul's endgame is not converts to Christianity. Paul's endgame is that people would be fully bought in whatever it takes, disciples, dangerous disciples of Jesus Christ that can look death in the face and say, I don't fear you, death, because I know the one that conquered him. And Paul's end game is that we would grow, that we would be rooted, he's going to say later on. This word preach is not like what I'm doing right now. And so get that out of your mind, that Paul's saying, I've got to be a preacher, but I don't, I'm not, that's really not my thing. I don't like stages. No, this is not what Paul had in mind. The word preach here is a unique Greek word that's not used elsewhere in the Bible. It literally means to publish, to make known. It's like having a conversation. You know, you can preach at work tomorrow. You know, you can preach at the coffee shop tonight. You know, that you can preach in your home. Preaching is not a stage. Preaching is a posture where you proclaim the word of God in a simple way. And you make it known. He's like, look, I want to make this known. And then this word warning, it's not like you're holding up a sign saying, turn or burn. Or you're out on the plaza just like with a bullhorn like, God said this and you're going to burn if you go shop at H&M because H&M stands for hell more. And that's what, I don't know, I've never heard that. Anyway, but, and so that's not what it's talking about. This word warn literally means that you're like, you are convinced and you are persuading this person. Paul would say elsewhere in Romans, I persuade men. I, I want, the, I, I'm convinced. And so so you are, are you confident when you, when you share the word of God? Are you like, look, man, I'm not real sure about this, but you probably won't try this out. No, you got to have some confidence because you know without a shadow of a doubt what's going on. And this word teach, it literally means to instruct. That Paul wants to see people progress in their relationship with Christ. That he has a whatever it takes mentality. A few years ago, about 10 years ago, there was a man that 
um, noticed that a bridge had just gone out on the west coast. There was a small earthquake. And it was enough earthquake that it wasn't a real big deal, but a bridge went out. And so it's, it's, a, it's early in the morning. It's still dark outside. And, and he, he pulls over, and then he sees a car pass him, and he's like, oh, somebody should say And then he taillights go over it. Uh-oh. And then he, so he's like, oh, man, I need to get out. I need to warn these people because they're going to drive over this bridge, and they may die. And so he gets out, he pulls his jacket off, and he's, he's, you know, waving it like a helicopter, you know, like, you know what I'm saying. Anyway, he's getting it up like this, and he's saying, hey, stop, stop. And a car just passes by, because that's probably what I would do too. Like 4 a.m., I see a guy on the West Coast waving his jacket like this. I'm like, I'm going to speed up. That man's crazy, right? And so he's like, uh-oh, I need to change my approach. And he sees a school bus coming. He's like, oh, my gosh, there may be kids on this school bus. And so he literally gets, I mean, he abandons all dignity, gets out in the middle of the road, and he's like warning them, stop, stop. And the bus pulls to a halt and is like, hey, say, man, what you, you know, like he's holding a gun. Anyway, and so he's like, what you need? And he's like, the bridge is out. And the guy says, you're a hero because you knew something that I didn't know, and you did something about it. What people in your life are headed over a bridge that you need to flag down? And it may come across as crazy, or you may just be their hero. If you really believe that hell is forever, then share the mystery. Whatever it takes, are you speaking the gospel? This notion that you can preach the gospel and use words if necessary, that your life can speak the word, that is nonsense. Open your mouth. Your life matters, but your lips matter too. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Do you have a whatever it takes mentality? Some of y'all are like, man, I, you know, God's doing great things here at Paradigm. I mean, we're reaching a lot of young adults, and man, we're just a lot of, and we celebrate what God's doing. And some of you would use that as a reason to not reach out to your people. And listen, you, we are but a slice, a sliver in the population of young adults in Kansas City. And we have, we have barely scratched the surface of what God wants to do. And we have an obligation to open up our mouths and share the gospel and listen, we're not trying to gather a bunch of people that see their job or their calling as a believer in Christ to invite people. We don't want to grow a culture of inviters only. The Bible never says, hey, do the work of an inviter. The scripture says, do the work of an evangelist. The end game is not to simply invite people to a gathering and then accrue a bunch of people who come to a gathering and sit back and go, oh, I invited a lot of people. That's great if you did, and thank God for you. And I invite people all the time. I'm steady slinging them paradigm invite cards. But the end game is that you would open your mouth and profoundly, excuse me, and you would make known the profound mystery of the gospel. That this would be a gathering, this would be like a pastor's conference every Tuesday night. That ministry off the stage is just as important. We say this all the time. Ministry off the stage is just as important as ministry on the stage. A man that started an incredible organization called Word of Life, he said it is each generation's responsibility to reach their own generation for the gospel. And we're doing nothing new, but it is our time to stand up and it is our time to speak the gospel, whatever it takes. David Platt, he wrote a book called Radical. 
And here's what he had to say, real short, but so punchy. He said this, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. If you have the gospel and you are not sharing that with people, you are wicked. And you think that God has saved you just so you could be a better version of you. And that's not how it works. He's saved you and he's changed you so that you could have a whatever it takes mentality. And that's why we love to do things like Unashamed Weekend. Unashamed Weekend, we're just coming off of that and we, we love to see young adults mobilized just in our city, Kansas City, to go pray, worship, share their faith, serve, go to other churches and just say, hey, there's a God that I've got to get out and tell somebody about. I just wanna shout, woo! And so we got these young adults together and one of the stories that came out of the weekend was a guy Named Luke, we're down in Westport, and uh, we're just engaging people, and we decided to hit it on the front side, uh, you know, like maybe about 3 o'clock before everybody got, you know, Westport crazy. Anyway, and so we're out there, most people are sober, and it's good. And so we have a good conversation. Well, Luke's rolling around, it's this awkward kind of like, man, I'm just going to roll up to somebody and uh, just engage them. We're like, yeah, yeah, that's what you're going to do. He's like, all right, I'm going to go talk with this dude. We're like, yeah, that's what you do. And so he goes out, and he's willing to suffer rejection. He's willing to suffer his time. He, he, he makes good money. He, he's got a lot of great things he could probably go do and have fun. But he say, look, I'm going to go to Unashamed Weekend. I'm going to go engage people. He shares the gospel with this guy. And this guy, you know, he's like, hey, can I share the gospel with you? Yeah, you can share the gospel with me. He starts sharing the gospel. Hey, you're bad news. You're, you're hopelessly lost more than you care to admit, okay? But good news is you're desperately loved more than you ever thought. Jesus, he came, did this, died, rose from the grave. And the guy's like, he's, he's jiving with Luke. And Luke says, hey, do you want to step into a right relationship with Christ? And the guy's like, yeah. Luke's like, all right, right now, okay. <laughs> you know, he's like, yeah. He probably didn't do that, but on the inside, okay. He prays, leads this guy to Christ. He didn't invite him to an event. He went out and he made it happen. He shared his faith, speak the gospel, whatever it takes. See, the best way to grow your faith is to go out and share your faith. You're going to memorize scripture. You're going to pray like you've never prayed before. Lord Jesus, you know, like it's so nerve-wracking. And then you're going to trust God to do the miraculous because every person that comes to Christ is a miracle of God. And you get to see him move. Go share your faith. Some of you, the reason why you're so disenchanted with the church is because you've never done what Jesus asked you to do. Open up your mouth and share the faith. Verse 29, Paul says this, to this end I also labor. <laughs> I love this, he used that word. I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So I love this that Paul says like, hey, this is a challenge, okay? Like this does me a lot of good. That Paul's like, hey, it's gonna be a grind a little bit. It's gonna be difficult. And Paul, like this is Paul. This is the guy that like raised Eutychus from the dead. This is the guy that like healed people. I mean, this is Paul, like saw Jesus, Damascus, Paul. And he's like, man, sometimes it's hard. And I love this because this is my experience. I'm out in Westport too. And I roll up there on the scene and I'm like, you know, Captain Paradigm out there, so people think. And so I get asked by, hey, can I shadow you? Can you show me how you do it? And at, immediately I'm like, mm, start getting nervous on the inside. Like, what if I let this brother down? What if I get rejected? You know, and I'm like, man, I'm just, and, and to be honest with you, as I'm driving downtown too unashamed, I'm just kind of like, man, I'd rather do leather work. I'd rather hang out with my kids. And I'm having to kind of like pump myself up, right? And the way I pump myself up is I look to the cross. I say, all right. Hey, man, you died for me. The least I can do is go live for you for a little while. You know what I'm saying? 
And so I go out there and they're like, all right, yeah, I'm going to shadow you. You're going to shadow me. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, all right. So you're just going to, you know, I'm like dodging people, you know, and I'm just trying to psych myself up. And I never got to share the gospel in front of this guy that was shadowing me. We wind up going to a tea place and we're sitting in there and I take a phone call and there's a couple sitting right outside there. And so I engage them by myself and I begin to share my faith with them. And I'm like, you know, there's a, they're a couple. I'm asking them questions. I'm getting in their life. I'm telling them what I do. We're talking. It's good. And I start sharing the gospel and they didn't want to have anything to do with me. And so my Captain Paradigm opportunity ended in a rejection. Is that a loss? No. Because I'm speaking the gospel. I'm doing whatever it takes. And listen, it is our job to share and God's job to save. We plant the seed, we water the seed, but God makes it grow. And this is not a loss. And so we need to get out and do whatever it takes. Paul had this mentality that no price was too great. No pain was too intense. No sleep was more desirable. No comfort more enjoyable for Paul. He learned culture. He learned conviction. He spoke with urgency. He wrote with intentionality. He walked streets. He rode place to places. He boarded ships. He preached in the penthouse and in the prison. He planted churches, empowered the next generation. He was a writer, a speaker, a mentor, a servant, and he gave his life away. He had a whatever it takes mentality. And listen, he did it all with remembering that it's God that does it all. And so I love this. He says, I labor and I strive according to his working, which works mightily in me. That Paul worked as as if it all depended upon him, but he rested as if it all depended upon Christ. He would say later on in Philippians 2, he would say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you got to work, you got to labor. But then he would follow and say, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And so we work and we labor and we do whatever it takes, but we have faith that God's going to do his part. Point number three, and finally, if you're taking notes tonight, write this down, spreading the gospel, spreading the gospel. When you have a whatever-it-takes mentality, you do whatever you can to get the gospel out. Paul, he had never been to Colossae. He's writing this letter from a prison in Rome, and here's what he writes, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. For as, many have, as, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. What he's saying is like, man, I wish I could meet all of y'all. I wish I could sit down and we could hang out, ride a camel together, go to Jerusalem, sip some tea or some wine or whatever they sip back in the day. I wish we could hang out, talk, and just, you know, chill. But I haven't met y'all. But listen, because I, just because I'm not there, just because I don't know you, doesn't keep me from spreading the gospel to you. That he didn't let geographical limitations prohibit him from spreading the gospel. And when you have a whatever it takes mentality, you get the message out however you can. That Paul, he was so convinced by this message. And we are too. And so, man, I'm so encouraged when people come up and say, Chad, man, great message. And man, it really challenged me and great job. And man, thank you so much for those words of encouragement. But the message that goes forth every Tuesday is not my work. And this isn't, this isn't me saying, you know, praise God, Holy Spirit. You know, that, that's definitely a large part of it. But there's men and women that sit on a creative team and we get together three times a week 
and we go in this passage and we begin to talk about what you guys are facing and we come together and we say, hey, God, lead us into the way. And so the message comes together. Then every Tuesday at like three o'clock, I stand on this stage and I preach this message. You're like, three o'clock, we do a three o'clock service at Paradigm? No, it's me and like three people. And it's awkward. But listen, I wanna, I wanna work the message out because practice is always better before the game, not after the game. And so we come up here and I preach my heart out to three people and they tell me how terrible it was and what needs to change and what we need to move around and how can we fix this? Not terrible, I'm just kidding. But they help me, they help me construct, they help me build. And so the message is all of these people and we're doing whatever it takes and they have given up their time and their talents and their thoughts, their creativity and they'll, they may never see this stage but they wanna spread the gospel and they do it for the glory of Christ. And so this message, it goes out and then we have a team that oversees like our podcast. A guy named Taylor, he's faithful to get the podcast out so that you guys can, can, can hear what God is teaching us so you can share it with somebody. And then we have a lady named Lauren and she oversees our landscape team and she gets the message out through social media. And, and let me just take, I'm just gonna kind of advertise real quick. We have a slide right here that if you wanna be a part of the creative team, Email us if you love social media and you're on Snapchat or LinkedIn, just kidding. But if you're on Snapchat and you're on Instagram and you want to get the message out and you want to help us tell a creative story, if you like videography, if you like telling stories and if you like doing graphic design, man, email us. Let us get you in the game. Help us spread the message. We're hoping to launch a, a video format of the message, but we need people. And so if you're interested in running the camera, we're producing a service, man, let us know. We need about five young adults to do that because we are committed to spread the gospel and to leverage what God has given us. And this is what Paul's doing in his day and age. There was a courier system. It was like a mail system in Rome. And so he writes letters to get the message out. Again, he had never been to these places, but he wrote messages. There was this, ro this, this like modern road system in Rome so Paul could travel all over the world and then Rome had this thing called Pax Romana and what that meant is that we are going to hold the peace by killing a lot of people but if you're a Roman citizen good news for you you can go wherever you want Paul Roman citizen so he leveraged the the technology of his day he leveraged the courier system of his day he leveraged the society the things that had been invented he leveraged them to spread the gospel and so that's what we hope to see you guys do. And that's what we've been seeing men and women do all throughout history. Some of you are like, man, I don't have a platform. Luther didn't have a platform until the, excuse me, Luther had a platform because a man invented the Gutenberg press. So Luther, he started the Reformation, man. He had 95 problems and the Pope was one. And he said, man, I've got, I've got some issues with the church. And so he started writing things, leveraging the Gutenberg press. And he said, look, I may not have a platform or a pulpit to preach from, but I got a pen and Gutenberg got it where I can write some things and then we can press them out and I can begin to publish these things and begin to start the Reformation. A guy named William Tyndale, some of you are like, man, I ain't got no money to do my thing. William Tyndale, he's the guy that translated the Bible into English and he was strangled and then burned for it. And his desire was to see the plowboy know the word of God, the plowboy, the farmer, the common man, know the word of God as good as the priest. And the only way that he could get the word of God out was because there was a man, and his name is Humphrey Monmouth, kind of a weird name, but Humphrey, he, he has some money. He was a merchant. He sold clothes for a living. He had a fleet of ships, all right? He was like Chattel or Chanel or whatever her name is. I don't know if that's close. Anyway, Gucci. All right, moving on. Monmouth, he had, I mean, he, he was rich. 
and he leveraged his money to support Tyndale's work. And when Tyndale was murdered at the stake, Monmouth took his writings, put them on his fleet of ships, and distributed the Word of God from Latin into English so that you and I would ultimately or eventually have our Bibles today. He's an unsung hero. Some of you are like, well, I can't get there. The Wright brothers, they invented flight in in the early 1900s. And then television came out and it was common. So Billy Graham says, well, I can get there and I can publicize too. And so he blended travel and he blended television. And he said, I'm going to start some crusades. And he leveraged the technology of his day. And then this man in the 1990s, Al Gore, he invented the internet. Not really. And you and I have the web today. Listen, we don't have to invent it in order to own it. We don't have to invent it in order to use it. When you have a whatever it takes mentality, you leverage whatever you got to do whatever it takes to spread the gospel. I wonder, are you using the things that you have, your social media? Are you using your, your, your resources to spread the gospel? Anything that you consume without a redemptive pur- purpose will distract your soul and ultimately destroy your soul. And so leverage your avenues of speech to herald the gospel, spread the gospel, whatever it takes. A guy named John Harper, he had a whatever it takes mentality. Harper, he was a minister in Scotland and he was invited to preach at Moody Bible Church in Chicago. And Harper, he was, man, he was gripped by the gospel. He had given his life to the gospel. Up until this point in his life, he had already buried his wife who had given birth to his daughter. His daughter was now six. You can see a picture of him right here. And Harper, he gets invited to go to Moody Bible Church to preach, and so he boards a boat. It was the unsinkable boat called the Titanic. And he gets on the boat with his daughter and with his sister. And you know the story. They hit an iceberg, and the ship begins to sink. Harper, a well-known minister at the time, he secures a spot on a lifeboat. And so he goes and he gets a life vest and then he gets his daughter and his sister and he gets in the lifeboat so that he can secure the spot and then he steps off the lifeboat and he says, get someone else on this lifeboat that doesn't know Christ, they need it more than me. And then he begins to go around to as many people as he can and says, do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Call upon his name and you will be saved. He begins to preach the gospel and the boat is going down. He had a whatever it takes mentality. He watches his daughter and he tells her, I'll see you later. And he willingly orphans his child. The boat goes down, Harper's in the freezing cold water, swimming from person to person. Do you know Christ? Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. A man says, I don't need your Christ. I need your life vest. He takes off his life vest, puts it on the man's neck, keeps swimming to other people. Do you know Christ? Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. It's dark. He doesn't know where he's swimming. He comes back to the man that he's given his life vest to. The man is fearful for his life. He says, I don't. He says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved, and he does. Harper then sinks to his death in the bottom of the North Atlantic. Moments later, we don't know how long, a rescue boat comes and finds a few survivors in the freezing cold water, one of which is the man that Harper gave his life vest to. 
Five years later, they're having a survivor's meeting in Ontario. And that man stands up and he says, I am the last convert of John Harper. That night of the wreck, he saved my life twice. Other people who knew Harper, they said he had a whatever it takes mentality. That he craved souls. That he would pray, God, give me souls or give me death. He had a whatever it takes mentality. Whatever it takes, church. Whatever it takes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this night. God, I thank you for my friends, and I thank you for the potency of a message like this, what it's done in my own life. I'm not where Harper is. I don't know that I love you as much as he does. I I don't know I'm where Paul is, but God, I want to be. So I pray for my friends that wherever they're at, God, that they would begin to lean into you. God, that they would just simply begin to activate what they know today. God, that they would be someone's John Harper, that there would be a sense of urgency in their life, that they would get to know the, the most profound message of the gospel. And God, they would, they would relish in this profound reality that Christ is in them, the hope of glory, and they wouldn't keep it to themselves. And for those who don't know you, Christ, I pray that you would help them to simply surrender their life over to you, that they would see that their condition spiritually is no different than that man that was waiting in the frigid cold waters after the boat had fallen. And they would understand that their time is short and they would call upon your name and be saved. In Christ's name I pray, amen.